Hello, I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership association for anti-financial crime professionals. Thanks for joining me for this, my ninth podcast of Financial Crime Matters. In this episode, I speak with Jacqueline Shinfield of Blake's Castles and Graydon about the latest amendments to Canada's Proceeds of Crime and Money Laundering Act and the state of the fight against financial crime in Canada. I hope you like the podcast and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because financial crime matters to you and to me. Here we go. Jackie, huge rules that have been issued by the Department of Finance for Canada's Proceeds of Crime and Money Laundering Terrorist Finance Act. Why? Why now? What are these supposed to address? We've been examined by FATF and there's been various deficiencies found in the legislation. When you look at the legislative changes, part of it is to capture much more information on transactions that are suspicious. Part of it is to address deficiencies that FATF found with our AML regime. And part of it is to modernize our AML regime and bring it more in keeping with a society that's depending on technology for AML expertise. By way of example, previously there was a specific provision in the legislation that said you couldn't rely on electronic copies of any documents. So that's been eliminated and now you can as long as you're comfortable something is authentic. Same thing with ID documents. Obviously as legislation changes and the world changes and we have fintechs and we have all kinds of technological developments, there has to be a recognition in the law that we can use these to help us. And so just to dwell for one more moment on FinTrack, which is the FIU, the deficiencies that Badaf pointed out were the inability to exchange information. So one of the issues is the STR or the SAR, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, the requirement is to report those promptly. And in Canada, our legislation says to date that you have to report to FinTrack within 30 days of first detecting that something is suspicious. Well, that standard has now changed. It's changed to you report it as soon as practicable, which is more closely aligned with the FATF standard of promptly. In addition to timing, there's many more data elements that go into the report now. And the thought is, if you have that information, if you're a financial institution or another regulated entity, and you have information in your systems about clients, they expect that now to be included in the STR form. So beneficial ownership is a requirement in majority circumstances to collect when you're in an ongoing business relationship. And so they want the beneficial ownership information right in the STR form. So they have all the information in front of them when they're going to do their analysis. There's this new timeliness standard, but that really went back and forth, right? So right now it's 30 and the draft regulations a year ago said three, three days. And there was a lot of pushback on three, we can't do three, what if it's a weekend? And I think my understanding was that there was an audit of what country that I cannot recall, and they had had a standard of five, and FATF said, no, five isn't promptly. So finance came up with three, three will work. And so there was so much pushback, they took out the actual number of days and put it more in line with a, a principle-based standard as soon as reasonably practical. But is that like a step back from the 30 days? So, you know, it's an interesting question. When you met with the regulators as we were going through the consultation and giving comments, they seem to indicate that they felt that most Canadian regulated entities did their analysis, did their assessment, and as soon as they were finished, they filed. And so they didn't think that anything would really change. They just thought that they were codifying what the FATF standard is. There's also some changes with regard to PEPs. So there are a few new PEP requirements. So now that prepaid cards are going to be regulated, under our legislation, there's PEP determinations for prepaid cards. And the other big change for PEPs are that now, you, instead of just getting source of funds, you have to actually ask for source 
wealth. So that's a new requirement, source of wealth. Now, the requirement is to ask for source of wealth, nothing more. But when you look at the actual guidance that FinTrack has its draft at this point, it seems to indicate along the lines that if the source of wealth doesn't line up with what you would anticipate, they expect you not to engage in a transaction with the PEP. The other PEP change is that for heads of international organizations, once you cease to be a head of international organization, you are no longer a PEP. They've changed that to extend that to a five-year period. So just like domestic PEPs, once you cease the position, you're still a PEP for five years. For heads of international organizations, you retain that PEP status for five years. Yeah, and that extends to family and associates and everything else. But it was an open-ended thing where you were kind of a pep for life. Foreign pep, once a pep, the domestic always a pep. peps. Domestic pep, five years, and heads of international organizations was the day they stopped, and now it also goes to the five-year stack. The source of wealth versus the source of funds. And just so that I understand that, how are the two different? I mean, before you showed me your bank accounts and I didn't ask you how you got that money, and now I'm supposed to say, well, yes, I see the bank accounts, but how did you get that money? Yes. So that's the exact question that all the regulated entities were asking FinTrack in the consultation. So source of funds was where did you get the money to undertake these transactions? You have to ask that when you do transfers of 100000 plus. So it's like, oh, well, that came from my checking account at my bank in the U.S. A source of wealth is how do you have your wealth? I'm a very successful business person or I received an inheritance. It's sort of like where does your wealth come from, not just the funds you used to fund an account or to undertake a transaction. The whole area of payment products, including cryptocurrency now, everything is getting regulated as a money service business. Is that right? Prepaid is only regulated by financial entities that issue prepaid. And crypto, or virtual currency, as we call it. Or we're calling them digital assets now, too. Particularly the people that want to sell them are calling them digital assets. That's right. So virtual currency is regulated in two ways. If you're someone that deals in virtual currency, then you'll be deemed to be an MSB and you'll fall under the MSB regime. The second way is anyone who's touching digital currency, whether you're a bank, an MSB, a life insurance company, any regulated entity that touches virtual currency has separate regulatory requirements that apply to virtual currency. So just like you keep large cash transaction records, you have to keep large virtual currency transaction records. Just like you keep EFT records for sends over a thousand, you keep virtual currency records for receipts of over a thousand. So a lot of the typical type of cash provisions that you have in law now are being mirrored for virtual currency for every regulated entity. So it's being regulated one, directly by people that are dealing in virtual currency and two, by anyone who's touching virtual currency. They're going to have specific regulatory requirements on that touch point. Is it fair to say this is one of the big changes because there was kind of a vacuum here? It was arguably a little bit of a wild west in Canada with regard to cryptocurrencies and their regulation. And this really does put them into, it sounds like a fairly tight regulatory regime. Yeah, that's right. They're going to be audited. They have to have a compliance regime. Just operating a crypto platform was something that wasn't regulated. So this does fill that hole. So how's it going to feel different for startup fintechs now? They really could just start to trade, whereas now they really have to... Yeah, now they have to come to the table. They have to register with FinTrack as an MSB, either a foreign MSB or a domestic MSB. And that's one of the other new changes. A foreign MSB is someone who isn't here in 
Canada, but who directs their services to persons in Canada. And what directs mean will be flushed out in the regulation. But in any event, if you are touching people in Canada, either domestically or offshore, you're covered by our regime. You have to be registered. You have to have compliance policies and procedures. You have to have a risk assessment on your business and on your clients. You have to appoint an anti-money laundering officer. And you have to comply with all the requirements, which are, as you would expect, reporting, record-keeping, client due diligence, and verification of identity. So before, foreign MSBs didn't have any requirements, even if they were doing business in Canada, or very few? Or? FinTrack looked at what they called a real and substantial connection to Canada, and they had a four-part test. Are you incorporated here? Do you have agents here? Do you have brick-and-mortar locations here? Or do you have a bank account here? In my experience, a lot of institutions or entities tended to have a bank account here just so they could deal in Canadian dollars, so they would be caught. But if you did operate from a totally offshore basis, even if you touched people in Canada, if you didn't have any of those you could, factors... You could put, you, send transactions into Canada without necessarily being regulated. You wouldn't need whereas to be regulated. You, you to whereas be. now, the test is, are you directing your services to people in Canada? So the preliminary guidance I've reviewed talks about directing services, meaning do you have a Canadian flag on your website? Is your website a .ca domain? Are you listed in business directories here? Are you marketing to Canadians? If you happen to be in Canada and you passively go to the website of a fintech and you want to engage in their service, but they're not out soliciting or marketing to Canadians, even though they're dealing with you as a Canadian, they probably wouldn't be caught. But if they're actively marketing and engaging and directing services towards people in Canada, you are caught. A lot of what directing services to people in Canada means will be flushed out in interpretive guidance, I would think. Just so that we're clear, how am I, as someone at a bank, opening an account? What am I going to do differently? What do I have to ask for or make sure that I understand differently than I did before? From a client perspective, there are a few additional record-keeping requirements, but nothing huge. So how does it address the FATF concern then? In terms of beneficial ownership information, that this is something that I mean, the US and Canada have been dinged on. The collection of beneficial ownership is inadequate. And is it really more at the corporation formation level? But that's not being addressed in this. So, is it? one of the issues in beneficial ownership was that institutions were relying on attestations by a corporate officer that had a one line attestation that said, I confirm Bob Smith is a beneficial owner. They were heavily criticized for those types of attestations. Part of the FinTrack's approach a while ago was they said, no, no, you have to use official source documents to confirm beneficial ownership. Well, for private companies, there are no official source documents. And this became a bit of a sticking point. And not all attestations are created equal, right? Some attestations are incredible. They're pages and pages. They have everything you could imagine. And some are one line. And I think there has to be a distinction. But what's happened to address beneficial ownership is really happened outside of the legislation. And that is that a meeting between Canada's finance ministers provincially and the federal finance minister, it was agreed that they would modify corporate statutes to provide a requirement to keep beneficial ownership records. And the very first statute to be amended is the CBCA, the Canada Business Corporations Act, which is the federal statute for Canadian incorporation. And they have a provision in there talking about requirement to keep a register of people that have, I think it's significant control or significant interest, which is defined as 25% plus, 
You need to get information on who the person is, name, address, occupation, residency for tax purposes, requirements to keep that register up to date at all times, significant penalties for that breach, including jail time, over $200,000 in fines. You're going to now have for corporations, and this is going to be rolled out across Canada for every province as well, specific requirement. And, and this also your, standardizes it because it wasn't standardized through the province. There was no standard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would think that most provinces will just cut and paste what the feds did. And so now you're going to say to your clients, okay, I need a copy of your beneficial ownership register, and there'll be an official source document. The one other small tweak that's been made to beneficial ownership is there's always been a requirement to engage in ongoing monitoring to determine beneficial owners. When you onboard a client, you have to collect beneficial ownership and take steps to confirm the accuracy. They've added a provision that says when you update your beneficial ownership, so if the beneficial ownership changes, you also have to take steps to confirm its accuracy. But I think it's hopeful that this new corporate requirement will basically roll out and get us where we need to be. Going much beyond responsibility of financial institutions. Also some changes in electronic fund transfers and new responsibilities that financial institutions have to make sure that everything is in order on an electronic fund transfer. So the electronic funds transfers is one of the most fundamental provisions that are changing significantly in my view. Mm -hmm. So right now there's a requirement in Canada to report electronic funds transfers of 10,000 plus outgoing and incoming. And how it works is the last to touch reports and the first to touch on the way in. So if you're sending an outgoing EFT and there's two regulated entities and a money service business is sending it to a bank and then the bank sends it out of the country, the bank is the reporting entity and they report all the information about the originator from that MSB and they have the reporting obligation. And similarly on incoming EFTs, the first bank to touch that EFT, even though it's going to submit it to let's say an MSB or another financial institution, it's the first bank to touch that report. And that's always on the assumption that all the originator and beneficiary information is there. So let's go with that assumption. Mm -hmm. Well, what's happened now is they've completely changed that reporting requirement. So now the entity that reports is the first entity to initiate the EFT. So in the example I just gave, when you have an MSB that's using a bank, it's the MSB that reports. And same thing on incoming. It's the actual entity that's paying that amount to the beneficiary that reports. So you now have a completely changed reporting regime where the person that receives the instructions reports and the person that pays the beneficiary report. So that's a huge change. The other change is there's now three record keeping categories. So there's a recognition of the person who sends the EFT, the initiator, they keep records. Now the middleman, the intermediary, also has to keep records and the recipient also has to keep records. Those are significant changes in the EFT world and in respect of that the travel rule has also been expanded. The outgoing send where you always have to include information about the originator, you have to include information about the beneficiary and when you receive an EFT, the travel rule says you have to use reasonable efforts to get the information on the person that sent the EFT. The law has now been amended to provide that you have to take reasonable measures to get that. And if you can't get that, you have to document in your policies and procedures whether you should suspend or reject that transaction. And I find it interesting the use of the words suspend or reject and not suspend or accept or reject or accept. The word suspend or reject seems to imply 
they don't expect you to accept the transaction if it comes in and you don't have all the originator information. The EFT world, in my view, is a place that a lot of regulated entities are going to have to change their policies mm -hmm. and procedures. Mm -hmm. Leaving aside the fact that those EFT reporting forms have been drastically altered. And so you're going to have to upgrade your systems to make sure that you address all the new requirements for EFT reporting. Right now, there's a form for outgoing EFT SWIFT, outgoing EFT non-SWIFT. That distinction is gone. There's just one form. You're really going to have to, especially for sophisticated institutions with system requirements, there's going to be a lot of work to be done to get those reports filed. Really interesting. It wasn't part of the amendments to the PCMLTFA. Did I get that right? Yes. An official ownership change at the provincial and federal level. That seems huge. And as you said, this seems huge in terms of addressing some of these big issues that Canada's had around money laundering. And that leads me to ask, what's left undone given the FATF criticism and the fact that Canada's really had to deal with this onslaught of funds from abroad that have come into the country, often from kleptocrats? And then coupled with all the reports that have come out of Vancouver and the money laundering and the real estate prices there. So there's been reports put out on what needs to be addressed. And there were, I think, 25 recommendations made earlier last year. It's all blurring together of where we still have holes in our system. So by way of example, mortgage lending, a lender, a plain vanilla lender that is not a bank is not subject to AML other than banks or life insurance companies. There's talk about having lenders. There's talk about having large cash courier companies being subject. There's talk about having, especially based on what happened in Vancouver, dealers in high-end luxury goods, art, automobile, boats, that they should be subject to the regime. We do not have, as they do in the U.S., structuring as an offense. So obviously if someone's engaged in structuring, it's suspicious, but it's not an offense. So there's been talk about adopting structuring provisions. There's talk about having the ability to have geo-targeting orders for specific geographical locations. All kinds of recommendations were made. A lot of them were accepted. Some of them deal with sharing of information. There was recommendations for public registry of beneficial ownerships. Even though these are pretty drastic, changes that are going to be rolled out over the next two years. Stay tuned because I think there's much more to come. Obviously, just as criminals find different and more novel ways to launder funds, there's going to be more to come. I expect once we get through the 2021 changes, we're going to see more changes to address what the government itself has identified as holes in our system. And some of that would be regardless of the outcome of the elections. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Jackie Shinfield, Blake, Castles, and Graydon, Thank you so much for taking this time to talk. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked what you heard and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.